May I please have your full and undivided attention? It is time for the Paranormal Rundown. Hello, this is Cedric Dankwell-Smythe. I'd like to welcome all fans of the paranormal, the unusual, the slightly off-kilter, the frightening, the terrifying, the horrifying, and simply the occasionally entertaining. This is the Paranormal Rundown. There's no place else like it. We now have 2,323 topics from which to choose. In this episode, Father Birdsong is... Replaced temporarily by Deacon Josh Birdsong. We have an astoundingly knowledgeable guest, Des Frankenmeyer, expert on esoteric philosophy, Medley P. Hall, and all things in the thaumaturgic and quantum realms. Tonight, the gang of nerds proudly tackles the random number generators, Ezekiel's Wheel, Dungeons and Dragons, and much, much more. Hello, everybody. This is Vic Hermanson with the 15th episode of the Paranormal Rundown. Count them 15. I never knew we would actually get to this point. Tonight, we have a guest, and his name is Gus Frankenmeyer. Gus is someone who has a great deal of knowledge concerning esoteric philosophy, uh, Manly P. Hall, kind of alternate history, that kind of thing. And I'll let him explain himself better. Uh, we also have on the line myself, Vic Hermanson, Dave Griffith from, what's it like in Florida now, Dave? Is it sunny in Florida or is it? Uh, That's nice. 60s, 70s, 60s, sunny 70s. today. Excellent. We have J.J. Uh, Johnson, our second Temple Judaism scholar from Virginia. And taking the place of Father Michael Birdsong is Josh Birdsong, Deacon Josh Birdsong. Uh, because Father Birdsong is simply under the weather and unable to do tonight's episode. The Paranormal Rundown, as you probably already know, is a random selection between 2,323 topics. That's a lot of topics. We will choose six, and then among us we will figure out which one we want to talk about first. And if we hate all the topics, then we cheat and we'll roll the dice again. And if anybody has a topic they just absolutely must talk about, then we allow them simply to say, I'm uh, using executive privilege and I'm choosing that topic. Anything I missed in all of that? I think that about covers it. About covers it. Okay. Welcome to the show, Gus. Thank you. All right. Let's go here. Hitting. Oh, I got to go back to Excel. <clears throat> Hitting the F9 key. And I'll just do one, two, three, four, five. Okay. Wait, before we start, can we talk about random number generators? Yes, we can. <laughs> yes, we can. That's actually the rules right off the bat. I, I, I like you, Gus. I like it, Gus. That's, good start. That's a that's a good that's a good thing to talk talk about. 
Hello all Paranormal Rundown fans. This is Avalon Lee and Dakworth Smythe. Huzzah, 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 and an extra huzzah just for good measure. Less than three minutes into the show proper and Gus, the stranger from the conceptual wilderness, has seized control of the gang of nerds. He must have a truly special form of paranormal dork talk mojo. Do you think that thoughts can influence random number generators? Ah, you're talking about the Princeton eggs. Well, it, maybe. Yes. Do I believe that <laughs> thoughts can? Yes, I do, actually. What I, about I, random number generators and quantum computers? Those are the ones I'm thinking of. What is a Princeton egg? Well, Gus, do you, do you know, can you talk about the Princeton eggs well? Well, I know that um, there, there's, there's a program that Google and a couple other companies are running that um, it, it uses uh, random number generators and quantum computers, and they actually had to shield them from human thought. Correct. Which is pretty odd. It's well, odd behavior for a computer in general, but... Specifically, I guess the quantum computer has that that issue. Well, we had I had a conversation probably with one of these guys in the last two weeks about ghosts being able poltergeist ghosts being able to impact quantum processors in quantum computers. You and I were talking about you and I were talking about that. I mean, so what you've got with the quantum computers, you've got a situation where the the processor itself is contained in this highly, highly shielded room. It's shielded from everything. It's shielded from electromagnetism. Uh, Gordy Rose, the guy who runs D-Wave, says that the, the space where the actual processor is in a quantum computer, which really looks about like the processor in my laptop, is the coldest place in the universe. I believe that. I, I, well, it has to be. Yeah, yeah it, it has to be. It's coldest place in the universe and it's so getting cold. go ahead does that mean that we can't think when there's cold when it's too cold out <laughs> <laughs> well okay so okay but wait 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 there's a lot to dig into here can, can we back up just for a little bit and talk about uh random number generators just in general first we sure can yes so as a technologist and architect and developer for the past 25 plus years i know my fair share about rngs rngs at least with your when with dealing with typical uh programming languages or libraries because almost everything is done through libraries because you never really want to reinvent the wheel random number generators are never truly random nope there is always a pattern because there's always a method to be able to pick one of these numbers and it's now, important can i jump in for a second yeah okay it's important in the simulation world at least that it not be truly random. Okay, you've got to be able to make one change in that model and make sure that it's going to go through the same exact random number stream that it went through before. 
Exactly. And, and, and you have will. to be able to track back exactly the steps mm-hmm. that were taken. Correct. Which is absolutely one of the missing pieces of ingredients when it comes to LLMs or large language models with generative AI. Mm-hmm. But that's an entirely different topic. Um, how, and you can attempt to seed random information, more and more random information to make it more random in general, but you're never going to truly get random. You can just try to sow as much chaos as humanly possible to get a more randomized number. However, when it comes to cute, when it comes to quantum computing, you're dealing with qubits. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, a particle can, you can only measure two distinct phases of a particle, the spin and its uh, charge. Mm-hmm. No, it's movement or it's, spin. anyway. You, you it, can I'm measure its a, velocity or you can measure its location. Right. I, mm-hmm. And you can never pick, you can never know both. Mm-hmm. And, and that's. But can't you bias both, like with electromagnetism? Can't you what? Can you repeat that question. Bi- Sorry. Can can you bias both of those things with electromagnetism? Well, you can pinpoint one of those two variables, but you can never know both due to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Hey, uh, Gus, can I can I just jump in here one second? Since sure. you you seem to be yeah. as I knew you would, just grooving right on in. <laughs> um, we had a fantastic guest one time, whose name was Sylvia Schultz. And we were kind of explaining to her what we were doing. And she says, oh, paranormal dork talk. Yeah, I can do that all day long. And, <laughs> <laughs> and this is perfect the, paranormal dork talk. We're on the precipice of physics, though, right now, I think. Well, that's okay. That's well um, within paranormal yeah. dark, dork talk. We're well. firmly in the realm of physics right now. Yeah, this is, this is just <laughs> – but this is just fine. But and, what you said, Gus, was you could bias – the spin or the direction, but that's right. that's still not measuring it though, right? You could potentially but influence, you, is what you're saying, but you can't guarantee it, right? But isn't measurement um, influence in this case on the quantum level? Yes, because it well it, yeah. on the quantum level, if you are so normally like it used to be like back in back when I was in school. If you ever saw a depiction of an atom, then it would have very, you know, distinct orbits for its electrons, etc. However, in very modern pictures, those are depicted as clouds because we know the general shape of where these things could be at. But until you physically measure it, they're everywhere at once. It's, it's a, a spooky distance at an action. Right, a cloud of probability. It's um, outside of time, right? And that's the that's the difference, right? Uh, I'm not quite Correct. sure what you mean. I'm not sure quite what you mean by that. It's not subject to time. Like it can be in multiple positions at the same time. Right. Exactly. Right. Yes. It can right. be. Or space. Yeah. But it's not okay. until you physically measure it will it become locked in one locale. Which is why they have to shield everything. Exactly. And the problem with qubits is suddenly you're dealing with a lot more variables than just, you know, a binary one or zero. You have, you know, several distinct different states. And so you're able to encode more information. However, because you can't truly predict 
every variable that's going on, it's impossible, at least according to physics as we understand it, then there are going to be random patterns that into into any computation. And you have to be able to factor any of those outliers out. And by making things as cold as humanly possible, as close to absolute zero as you know as we can get, then that helps to eliminate some of that variance. And in fact, we're actually we've been at least according to these companies that create these quantum computers, they have been able to add even more qubits into the equation than was predicted upon a linear time scale. Well, can I can I talk about that a second? Yeah. I had the pleasure of meeting Gordy Rose one time, who is a he's the founder of D Wave. And met him. That's that's pretty cool. It was very cool. Uh, and I, I got to talk to him for 15, 20 minutes. D Wave is a company that makes what they call uh, an adiabatic quantum annealer. Predictive models. What's that? Predictive models. Predictive models, right? Like uh, the traveling salesman kind of optimization kind of problems. And okay. it, it, it doesn't do every, that computer doesn't do everything that a, you know, just even my laptop can do in terms of being a gated computer. But they've been doing this now for, gosh, how long has D-Wave been around, Dave? Must easily 25 years now or so. It's been a bit, but I don't. Yeah, it's been a bit. So since they got on the scene first, they've got this massive patent bank. Of all this, of all this different quantum technologies. So, if Google or Amazon if they want to do something in the quantum realm, they got to pay D-Wave at least for a while longer. But what he was saying was, you know, look, uh, if you have one gated computer that's a universal computer, that's great. But I can take four quantum annealers and run them together in such a way that they're more or less doing the same thing as a gated computer does. And I can't, I, I'm not limited to four or six or eight qubits like these classical computer, classical representations of a quantum computer are. I have 64,000 qubits. Vic Hermanson, in your enthusiasm, you have slightly overstated the actual specifications of the most powerful current D-Wave computer. It is called the Advantage and has 5,000 active qubits with 15 couplers per qubit. Still, despite its tremendous power with certain types of problems, it should not be considered a general purpose computer. Now, they're not 64,000 general purpose qubits, but that's still a very, very powerful kind of thing to have going on. I've been wondering what the companies who buy these computers are, are doing with them. You know what? What is, Lockheed buys? Lockheed is always one of the first companies to buy these things. Google has a a full quantum computer lab now. I wonder what the work being done on those computers is. Predictive models. We probably most, don't want to know. <laughs> I mean, from what probably I hear, it's predictive models. <laughs> Predict predictive modeling in terms of like yeah, we like weather they're, they're stock markets. That, yeah, stock markets is where I think the D wave stuff was originally like um, used. Uh huh. Um, and I think Google uses it and a couple other companies, but that, that's, that's what I've heard. Well, you're, and I'm pretty sure you're right. I'm, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I am pretty sure you're right. I just, I think, I thought they took like emotive, um, 
language and converted it to code where the code would um, like basically if if a large group of people in a certain area used the same emotive words that would be like put into the database as like a, a predictor of sorts so like it could it could predict like human behavior correct well that gets us back to the eggs okay the princeton eggs and i don't know how many princeton eggs there are now Greetings, everyone. This is Cedric Dankworth Smythe. There are currently 70 Princeton eggs in service. They are part of what is generally known as the Global Consciousness Project. I now return you to the Unprotected Gang of Nerds. But there are... The last I checked, there were several hundred spread out through the world. The Commandson has been in a genuine exaggeration role tonight. We'll have to have a discussion about that. Okay, an egg is just a small random number generator. And the truth is, I don't know if it's just a pseudo random number generator like all other number generators, or if it's something like a an electronic circuit that's taking random data from the noise between two transistors or two resistors, or it's keying on something like atomic decay because using those methods you actually can get genuine randomness like but like atomic i said atomic decay would that be random though really well one, once again i mean you're talking if there's any pattern it's going to play out over a couple of billion years hmm. and so i don't know about you gus but i don't think i want to be around in a couple of billion years uh, <laughs> let's hope not <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, think we want to see ourselves in the mirror in a couple of I mean, here, that's the thing I tell people they talk about yeah. well you know what about eternity what about being here in a couple of billion years look I'm fairly got next Thursday under control um, right. <laughs> and you're doing better than I am you know I mean I've barely got next Thursday under control I, I don't think I'm going to be able to handle a billion years from now but anyway, what the eggs do is they're constantly creating random numbers, mil you know, billions of times a second. And, of course, what you're going to get over time is a, uh, a jagged line. A chicken? A what? A, a what? A chicken. Yeah. yeah. You said egg. Right? Yeah, well, egg. Yeah, you get a chicken. Good one. Yeah. I like that. But you're going to get this jagged line. Hello, this is Cedric Dankwell Smythe. Gus has inspired me to explore my cybernetic humor side why did the quantum chicken cross the road well of course to get to the other side and to stay on the same side at the same time <laughs> you didn't know i could be so funny did you where the number of positive number where the number of ones go up or the number of zeros go up anyway this is going to be this very ragged line jagged line and over time, it's going to uh, revert to a mean, revert to whatever mean it's using. What they have found, and this is not speculation, I can find the articles and I can, they're peer-reviewed, I can send them to you. Prior to some major world event, the eggs go nuts. And you'll get these big shifts in either positive numbers, negative numbers, whatever they're doing. And that's an indication that something is getting ready to happen somewhere. The biggest shift ever measured 
was the uh, 9-11 World Trade Center attacks, where these things just went totally nuts. Now, the problem is, it seems like it'll tell you that something's going to happen, but you have no data at all as to what it might be. It's kind of like consciousness and awareness isn't limited to to linear forward time. It projects backwards, basically. Projects backwards, yeah. Yeah, which makes sense. Theoretically, and and I, I well, the, the, I'm, I'm glad it makes sense already. to you. Well, yeah, but they they publish every month meaning meaningful statistical anomalies in the egg system, and then they try to they try to tie it to whatever it might be. And I'm not sure they even always get it right, you know. But, but some things are so big it's just kind of clear, like the um, Fukushima meltdown. Still uh, leaking, by the way. Still leaking, by the way. The eggs start to show something is going to happen prior to people understanding what happened. Look, I think that's amazing. It's just one of those questions of that means there's a lot to the universe that I don't understand. And guess what? Nobody else does either. I've I've heard that the they tried to narrow down um, like emotive states of people, like to to kind of diagnose like which emotive state brings. Like it basically it would predict an, an event happening and compassion is the, is the emotive state that they've identified, which is kind of interesting. Okay. Tell me more about that. So like when people use words to describe what's happening and they share it online, um, they're obviously going to pick particular words um, uh-huh. that, that kind of communicate their emotive state, but words that depict compassion are the ones that kind of are a precursor to like, terrible things happening (laughs) well yeah but but compassionate words in the online world are relatively rare right and it's usually reserved for times when something terrible happens okay and so people start using more okay i've got you now okay so people start using more compassionate words prior to the thousand pound bomb going off in the mosque in washington or whatever oh well maybe like after it goes off and um like the backwards projection backwards projection okay yeah 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 so that's essentially um the way i understood it i i read a couple articles on it too um the i mean on the quantum level because time doesn't exist it kind of makes sense that you could project backwards and maybe give yourself ideas in the past I mean, yeah, obviously quantum entangled with yourself at different points in time and space, right? I got got a question I'd like to throw out to the group and with the thought that maybe somebody knows that you will hear the term quantum entanglement quite a bit. It's a pretty common term. Okay. And of course, what that means is you got two particles, you know, one particle is in your front yard, one particle is on Mars and you change the state of the particle in your front yard and the particle on Mars instantaneously changes in order to reflect that, in order to reflect that state change. Right. That's what Jake or JJ mentioned earlier, spooky action, at spooky a action at a distance. Yep. How do those two articles, those two particles become entangled in the first place? Wait, do you mind if I 
if I divert this conversation for a second. The the first rule of paranormal rundown is there are no more there are no rules of paranormal rundown. All right. All right. Well, I didn't want to completely derail your thought, but I mean, I was thinking this out. Right, uh-huh. there's a way to time travel because of this the spooky action. Um, what you could potentially do is quantum entangle two particles together, send them through a beam of light, right? At the speed of light, receive them back in the past, and you could potentially communicate with yourself in the past by doing that. Think about that. Like you could send yourself messages in the past by you sending could... from the past to the future. But it can only be at the time that you created the machine that would send the particle to the future. You could spin the particle in the past, communicate with yourself in the future, okay. mm-hmm. and and tell yourself, you know, potentially, you know, different things. I mean, you could say like, you could tell yourself all kinds of things, and I then think... the, the future you could communicate with you in the past by spinning the same particle. Well, I would like I would like that. I mean, I'd like for I'd like for my sixteen year old self to know three words, you know, uh, Dell, Apple, Amazon. <laughs> Did they have, <laughs> was, was there a quantum computer in the past that you could communicate with yourself with? <laughs> no, but I'm going for the deluxe model. Right. Um, okay. we, 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 <laughs> theoretically, this is possible. No, I'd be happy with just those three words. <laughs> just give me those three words. Well, so theoretically, it's possible. Te- technology is not there. Maybe it is. Maybe maybe it's happening right well, now. Well, that's maybe that may be what Google and Northrop Grumman and Lockheed and I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure Amazon's got a, a quantum computer lab somewhere, don't they, JJ? I mean, we do indeed. We have, uh, there is, uh, you can actually rent time on our quantum stuff that's in the cloud. You can rent time to yeah. use it? Yeah. Just like, just like you used to rent time on mainframe. You can rent. For, is, um, is it time in the future or the past? <laughs> only, only the present. All right. Only the present. Okay. Well, so so what sort of things are people... Or do they tell you, are people or companies renting time to do? Oh, no, we are not privileged to that information unless you are working directly on that particular client engagement. And even then, even then, you've got a serious NDC going on. Exactly. Or, or NDA, I wouldn't be able to just... say a word. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in general, <laughs> the, the thing is, is about quantum computers, there are very definitive use cases for when a quantum computer is going to be able to provide a faster, more reliable answer than a traditional computer system can. However, it's not, I mean, it is not a well-defined problem set. In fact, people are still searching for what is the best reason to use a quantum computer? There are definitely algorithms out there which needs that extra set of uh, capabilities, but it, this is something that is still being actively researched. I mean, it takes a lot of resources to operate one, right? Like, oh, it does. Expensive. Well, I'll hold out till I can afford one. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I think probably just the infrastructure for one is bigger than your house. <laughs> but currently. I just That's like how true. we went to random number generator to quantum physics and time travel. <laughs> oh, hey. So, okay, let's, let's try something. Why don't you try your random number generator and we'll all think about melon heads. <laughs> See if we can influence it. Give me a thumbs up. I've brought several, I've brought several guests to the rundown. For the most part, they've been Cracker Jack. <laughs> 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 Is Gus Cracker Jack or not? <laughs> <laughs> He's all right. Very definite natural <laughs> member of the Dork Crew. Mm-hmm. Um, no, absolutely. Great, great uh, yeah, tangent right off the bat. Right. Interesting. Bam. Topic. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Just like rookie of the year. Um, okay. Let's let me pull up. Uh, I'm, I'm going to share this one, though. I mean, I'm going to I want to make sure that nobody thinks I'm trying to uh, trying to lie. Um, well, and while you're doing that, so that the conversation Vic and I had on this the other day was about. I bet you that. The tech moguls that run these companies that deal with the quantum computers have to deal with things like sites with paranormal activity. You know, the conversation was along the lines of, you know, do you think when they're picking where they're going to put their big super quantum computer infrastructure, make sure it's not haunted? (laughs) Because the last thing we need (laughs) is to have all of this electromagnetic interference, cold spots, Whatever, you know, energy waves that happen uh, messing up with our computers. So they won't be on Skinwalker Ranch. Right. Exactly. You, you wouldn't put right. you wouldn't put your quantum computer on Skinwalker Ranch or in right. the, uh, the Stanley house, Hotel. The Stanley Hotel <laughs> right. or the, yeah. uh, the, the house in Poltergeist or any of these places. Which brings up the question, is the shielding that they do enough or is it... Let's say that you built, let's say that you uh, were at Homestead 2 or whatever it is at Skinwalker Ranch. And that's where you chose to build your your quantum computer plant, <laughs> right? And now, if you clear away the house, that doesn't necessarily mean the activity is gone because we've seen mm-hmm. activity in places where houses have been demolished. Sure. Right? If you... If you dig down three stories, well, three stories below that house where it was, is that area clear enough? Right? If you took and dug down three stories and built three stories above it, and you built this big room and you shielded the whole thing. Put a foot of copper around it. Yeah, exactly. Uh Would that be enough? Or is the physical uh, coordinates of where that homestead too was what is physically haunted, right? Is there still going to be activity in there? That is an interesting thought, though. Um, how, how would you shield it properly from that interference? Well, and if and you were, Would it be enough? If the spot that is haunted is inside of that shielding, even if you've cleared everything out, you've dug out all the land, you've removed all the house, all the infrastructure, and you have nothing but empty space there, well, is the paranormal activity tied to the molecules of the land, or is it tied to that physical location in space and time? 
Well, what about this thought? Like, so doesn't CERN have a quantum computer? I'm sure they do. I would imagine. Okay. I I heard they were that they built the whole CERN complex on an old site that was like a temple to Apollo. And uh, and, and they it was yeah, probably local legend that it was local legend that it was a gate to the underworld. <laughs> mm-hmm. So maybe maybe like intentionally you can cross dimensions maybe if if you were to build a, a quantum computer. Well, have you ever seen the 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 ceremony, the public party they did when they opened CERN? Oh yeah, that was creepy, wasn't it? It was pretty damn creepy. It was a little creepy. To go look I don't that. I don't I think I've seen, seen that. Well, it, it's oh, kind of yeah. it's kind of um like watching a druid ritual or something. Uh, ah, okay. It's pretty damn creepy, but mm-hmm. oh, okay. We well, first well, let me. I got one more thing I want to say. Is yeah. Well, there needs to be then a service of people who find places in the world that are the most boring, where there's not any electromagnetic interference, where there's nothing that's going to happen to your no abnormality, no abnormality, no blips. Right, just the most boring places you can find. Dead zones. <laughs> Dead zones. So when we, when various space agencies send something to the moon or they send something to Mars, they go to boring places because they're trying to land somewhere where it's flat, where there aren't any gravitational anomalies, where they can put a craft down there and probably have it survive. And what that means is that everything around there is about the same. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, things aren't very interesting. Um, so like Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, yeah, I was about like, to say. Kansas City, yeah. Missouri. <laughs> it's like uh, I-20 here in Georgia. It's just boring the whole way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What we're talking about here is a directed intention experiment. Okay. A somewhat small scale. Melonhead. The Melonhead experiment. Melonhead. So, so this is like the stuff that uh, I, I've mentioned before. Is we've we've touched on a couple of these things before, but Rupert Sheldrake has directed attention experiments on his <laughs> website. Go out there, sheldrake.org. How you can? How did he go you, about doing them? Maybe so, we should follow the scientific principle on it. Uh, in this case. He has these experiments where you have you you choose a partner and you log in to two different computers and you do a joint attention test and it shows a series of like I can't remember three or four images and one of you is the chooser right you're focusing on which image you want to choose and the other is the guesser, and they have to guess which image it is the chooser is choosing. And hmm. apparently they've had some really interesting results with that. Okay. I, I, In fact, when we had the guys from The Wandering Road on, we had Chris and Dean, I told them it would be perfect for the two of them before one of their shows to, to log on to that site and, and play with that. So in this case, would Victor be the um, would Vic be the uh, the chooser? I, I guess it? so, since I've got the. I mean, anybody who had the program in okay. front of them could be the chooser. Okay. 
right. Um, I mean, I guess really what would be best <clears throat> would be if I sent you the list, you gave it to your daughter or your wife, you had them run it, and we're all concentrating to get melon heads. <laughs> well, they're asleep. So <laughs> they're asleep, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I kinda of figured that, but yeah. so do you guys know what the um talking about quantum stuff, do you know what the Penrose hammer off model is? Yeah. This is on Final Jeopardy last night. Um <clears throat> the Penrose hammer off model, Roger Penrose wrote this paper a long time ago now, uh mid eighties or so, talking about because in brain cells, there are microtubules, little cylindrical protein lattices. And his conjecture is that quantum processes go on inside of those microtubules. And that's what, that is how human consciousness arises. Through the, the quantum activity of the brain. Okay. That's as far as I can take that. <laughs> so it's just from the brain. Consciousness is just a brain activity. According to Roger so, okay. According to so Roger Penrose. So it's inside it's inside the biological model somewhere. Like there's basically your consciousness is like tied to your physical state. Correct. That's the Roger Penrose approach. Then there's also like the view that your consciousness holds your physical state together in yes. the first place. What What's the name for that? Because I don't really know the name for that one. Consciousness holds your physical state together. I don't know Meaning the name that. Meaning that if I think, you I, lost I think, like, consciousness, you'd fall apart? Pretty much. Um, um, I think Plotinus was the, the first one to kind of put the, the hammer to the nail on that one. Great. Something um, else I've got to worry about. Consciousness. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Next thing you know, I'm just a pile of molecules laying on the floor. Okay, Plotinus was a Greek Platonist philosopher born and raised in Roman Egypt. Um, let's see. Let's put Plotinus consciousness in here. You might type in like Plotinus the one or like they, they call him like Plotinus the beautiful because he basically had a theory that if a hole didn't serve a purpose, then it wasn't a hole, I guess. All right. Uh, it's here, but I'm going to tell you right away, this is this is too big a rabbit hole to go down and do it justice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We can we can do many rabbit holes, but this one would take us the rest of the rundown. So oh, yeah. why don't I add it to the rundown? And put together a little bit of information about it, and then <clears throat> at some future show we'll we'll talk about Plotinus. That because there's a lot to talk about here, there but is. it's too big a rabbit hole. Okay, here's the here is the suggestion from Gus. He wants us to all concentrate heavily on melon heads, and I'm gonna hit the F9 key for a while, and whenever Gus as the honored guest tells me to i will let go no. what's no. that no i haven't started depressing it yet 
<laughs> and so ain't no gas in it. Uh, I <laughs> Why that motor running? Ain't got no gas in it. Um, okay, I am starting to press right now. Waiting for the the sign from Gus. Concentrating on melon heads. I give it a go. Okay, and uh, from the melon heads. Better mystery, mustang, paranormal aspects. Debunked. All right, cross well, that. Well, one come off. on, come on. That's a, that's an N of one. No. I think we need. To... <laughs> I think we need to give it an end of at least three. I mean, <laughs> we I'm got uh, no, Infernal Named Abolus, uh, Ability Faith Healing, The Bender Mystery, Remote Staring, Paranormal Aspects Ooh. of Sex, and Are There Any Actual Paranormal Experts? Okay, okay. But now this is, let's let's do three times, right? And uh -huh. the third time we'll pick from that list is our next topic. But let's just notice that Remote staring is a related topic to what we're trying to do. So you have to actually watch the spreadsheet. Right? You're talking okay. about influencing something through consciousness, remote staring, which I assume is something really related to like remote viewing. Well, no, what that That's means in is in the same when, realm. If you're if you're in a room and there's somebody because we don't have a, a a quantum computer. Right, we don't have a quantum computer. They're they don't they're not on sale this week. Should um, we rent space? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the rundown doesn't have that kind of a budget. My understanding, my my understanding <laughs> is that um, for a while there, Randonautica actually was renting quantum computer space. You know, I haven't used that app in a long time, but I have used that app. All right, let's let's. That should go. be a topic. It is. Um, it, it's it's definitely in the rundown. Guarantee you. All right, so let's let's do it again and right. see if we come up with another topic that's sort of uh, right, quantum so you, influence. So, you, so like. you're you're counting uh, remote staring as kind as kind of a hit. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a hit. It's it's an interesting. All right, here similarity. We go. Okay, starting the random selection process. Now you got to give me a few seconds so I can get my mind away from the spreadsheet and onto melon now. heads. No. Okay, here we go. Pressing. Now, X-ray eyes, X-ray vision, New England faceless people, serious mystery. Sure, go ahead and lick that frog. Ezekiel's wheel. Why would Satan buy souls when they are so freely offered? I'm going to say that is a that's a complete miss. What's Ezekiel's wheel? Oh God, the Bible I that topic. The biblical topic. Okay, from the okay. You hate so that topic? Or you, the Bible. J, J, did you say you hate that topic or you love that topic? I love that topic. Okay, we can put that on there. Okay, last time here. Nine. Okay, got my mind on that forest with those big old melon head kids with big fangs and claws. No. Chinese Bosnian pyramids, Patagonian giants, super consciousness. Do we need a Butlerian jihad, Amish hex signs, and Project Blue Book? Okay, well, I'm going to say that our experiment with an N of three was a bust. Debunked. But you did get super consciousness. I did get super consciousness. I absolutely did get super consciousness. So two consciousness-related topics. Two consciousness-related topics. Out of three runs. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think it's as interesting. I think, I think it's as good as any. It's a pattern. That's a pattern. little bit of a pattern. So, Why don't you hit it one more time, though? Let's, let's, okay. I don't like these topics. Let's pick a different topic. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, got to get my mind in the forest with those melon heads. Look, you, you got to right. really see this. I don't have no, visual. No, no, no. I, try this this time. You, uh -huh. 
don't think of anything. Don't think, think of anything. Make my mind blank. And we, will, and we will focus on the Melonhead kids. Like, oh, yeah, that's good. Like, don't good. think of purple polar bears kind of thing. Okay. They, Making, no, think, of, think of your happiest memory. How about that? And the try, rest of that. us will think Melonhead. Okay, yeah. I got it. Here we go. Okay. Now. Uh, nope. Let's see. Aggressive comedy response to any paranormal evidence, fantasy proneness, Barbados vaults, Order of the Golden Dawn, Split Brain Syndrome, King Arthur, and Arthurian Legends. No way. No. Okay. okay. Well, debunked. <clears throat> debunked. All right. Listen, that was as good an opening as we've ever had, I would say. Um. That, that was the best topic before the topic that we've ever had. That was the that, that look that that, <laughs> that was a topic before the topic. It got us through, you know, close to forty five minutes of rundown. Okay, let me go back to the topics that we chose a moment ago, since I made a screenshot a screenshot of those. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the first topics chosen in the Gus Frankenmeyer era of the paranormal rundown were H.H. H. Holmes and the Chicago Murder House. Number two, nature of evil. Is it an absolute? Number three, what does the devil look like? Number four, a pretty broad topic, visions. Number five, Lovelock Cave. And number six, seemingly absurd statements, such as, we do not exist, time is not real, etc., and I get to pick. Is that is that how this works? If, if you if you like any of those, or if you hate all those, we can spin again. Was there mm. six, or was there just five? There were six. You know, AJ's Holmes, Nature of Evil. Was the what does the devil look like? Visions, Lovelock Cave, absurd statements. Let's do absurd statements for eleven. <laughs> I, I like the absurd Let's do eleven in there. I mean, I I like the absurd statements question. Okay. Because you'll hear this sort of thing where, you know, where physics will say things like, well, you know, you really aren't conscious. You don't have any consciousness. Or things like, humans have no free will. And yes, I'm trying to sound specifically like a douchebag. But... <laughs> <laughs> Keep working on that voice, Rick, but I think you're getting there. <laughs> Is that what... Is that what big science tells us? Yes, this is what yes, yes, big science wants us to believe that our minds have no impact into the existence of the world and that we are merely mechanical beings. You hear this kind of stuff all the time. So when I hear the terms of time is not real, well, believe me, uh, you know, my, uh, my time clock and my deadline calendar tells me the time is real. The fact that if I don't feed a child or a dog or myself, you know, over 40 days, time is real. My wife insists that my forgetting stuff in time is very, very real. Yes, I know. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, here, and here's the other thing. I, I've got a <laughs> mostly eidetic memory. And it's not perfect. I'm not a Tesla. But... Nothing feels like it happened a long time ago. Everything that I can remember is so vivid and fresh and clear in my mind that it might as well have happened yesterday or last week. And that sounds really great. No. For good things. For good things. <laughs> it sounds 
absolutely horrible for bad things. Absolutely horrible. So who's got any brilliance on, on these kinds of statements? I think um, Kronos, there's a statue of Kronos in Greece, and I forget exactly where, but on the base of the statue, it says there are two kinds of time. And that's kind of like an interesting statement. Um, kind of makes you think about like the theoretical concept of time and like, what is it really like? And we, we have a very linear view. Hello. This is Avalon Lee and Dankworth Smythe. In many ways, and for many concepts, the ancient Greeks were more accurate in their distinctions than is modern man. For instance, they recognized eight distinct types of love. To the Greeks, the word chronos meant time as it can be measured by a clock. Seconds, minutes, hours, years, even millennia. It refers to the ephemeral and irretrievable nature of time. Once that instantaneous segment of linear time has passed, it is gone forever. Chronos is a quantitative concept. Kairos, on the other hand, is qualitative. It measures moments, not seconds. Further, it refers to the right moment, the opportune moment, the perfect moment. Poetically, it has been described as, the world takes a breath, and in the pause before it exhales, the fates of humans, kings, and even nations can be changed. On time, like there's a start and a finish. But really, like, what is it? It's just a way for our brains to interpret moving in space. Correct. Right? And that's, that's essentially a sense. It's not, it's not a linear thing that, that starts and stops, and there's no real definite point on the timeline besides your memory. Your memory is the only thing that records a snapshot of how it was for you at that exact moment. Well, but, I mean, if you look at it in a certain way, all that exists is contained within the current Planck time length. That's that's it. Explain, explain that. Okay. Well, the 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 Planck measurements are the point where the universe breaks down mathematically. Okay. There's a, a minimum distance that can be measured, and that can that can be discussed mathematically. There's a minimum amount of time that can be discussed mathematically, and that's so that's the Planck length and the Planck time. So our lives, if you if you look at it that way, are just a continuing set of stacked up dominoes, each domino falling over in one plank unit of time. It's like a movie. But can you can you explain it though without resorting to science? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see here. Um, well, can I? All right, maybe I can. Okay. I mean, you're, you're, you're pretty good at this stuff too, Gus. Huh. Well, all right. I mean, I, I kind of like the domino idea. When I was a child, I actually had in my mind the belief that I died every tiny little interval of time. I, I, I stopped existing every tiny little interval of time. And immediately I was replaced by another me for the next tiny little interval of time. And I, mm -hmm. I, I was going through this stuff when I was eight. That's like an extreme version of the Lingoliers. 
<laughs> well, t- tell us about that. I mean, <laughs> now Langoliers was a very good um, Stephen King novel. Well, I'm not sure if it was a novel or a short story, but I do remember reading it while I was on a plane flying, and considering the fact that I cannot go to sleep on a flight, doesn't matter how long it is. I was rightfully petrified by the time that I landed on the ground because in the story, everyone gets on a plane, the plane passes through a rift in space, and anyone who was not asleep is essentially catapulted into a frozen moment of time, which is now in the past. And in the story, and spoiler alerts for anyone who wants to read it and has not yet, or seen the wonderful ABC uh, family movie that depicted it, I, I'm a sucker for the ABC movies of the Stephen King's books. And I'm probably, I know I'm the only one, but. No, 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 no. I, I, I like those. Way. I remember, I think I, I think I saw the movie, or at least parts of it. Because oh, yeah. what I'm but, remembering uh, is everybody was saying things like, why does the sound why is the sound so muffled oh yeah and like food suddenly did not taste right anything drinkable did not taste it stale and then they began to see these creatures and at least in the movie they were depicted as having just it was a giant it was almost like a beholder but instead of eye stalks, it only had three flaps that closed in the front. And each one of those flaps was surrounded with serrated teeth that rotated extremely fast. And their job was to constantly annihilate time, these past times, in order to make way for future times. What's a beholder? Oh, Beholder is a D&D monster. They are floating circular balls with eye stalks on the end and one giant eye in the middle with a row full of serrated teeth. And each one of the eye stalks will cast a different form of magic. And the central eye casts out a anti-magic field. Uh, extremely deadly. They are unnatural. Uh, and in fact, if you cause a beholder to dream, then that is how they reproduce. Another beholder or, or a death tyrant or one of the other numerous offshoots of that lineage can and then spring forth into reality. Well, Vic, before we go on to another topic, I just wanted to ask with with the things, with this topic of comments or of statements, was there something specific you were trying to get at with it when you put it down? Because a lot of times you have an underlying idea of of why. Were you just looking for... You mean random the, things? The statement, or, uh, the the topic of these ridiculous, seemingly absurd statements. Yeah, was there some correlation you were looking at across all those statements that are made? Well, there or? are a lot more than just those three. Oh, there, I know, I know. Yeah. Well, that's my point. Is there a yeah. commonality that well, you're thinking? Well, yes. I mean, look. If there's one thing that I'm proud of about myself, is that I piss off everybody. <laughs> I, I I piss off theists. I piss off atheists, I piss off scientists, 
I piss off flat earthers. Everybody who talks to me finds something to be pissed off about. Um, in my mind, that means I'm doing something right. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm asking questions that people find universally uncomfortable. And so to me, like, you know, the douchebag voice that I use, yes, this common man simply can't understand these things, drives me freaking nuts. Because I believe the common man is generally pretty damn smart, pretty damn capable of understanding reality, pretty damn capable of getting information out of systems that the elite intelligentsia generally considers them to be unqualified to do. And I, I just hate these kind of statements. And, and when you, when you read the, when you say, okay, look, so the man has no free will. I, I spent an entire Sunday a few weeks ago going through the University of Northern Iowa library trying to find peer-reviewed articles about human free will. And look, I got to tell you, there's just not a lot of meat there. There's just not Isn't there, like philosophical though, like I mean, more than scientific, right? Yeah, it's much so, more. It's much more philosophical than scientific. I mean, I mean, when you go into when you go into the scientific realm that has to do with will, it, it seems like we were talking about before about human thoughts impacting quantum computers. That's a an a situation where human will is changing the physical world. I mean, just, you know, just read about the double slit experiment, you know, hmm. of, you know, as soon as there's observation, you know, you've got, you've got wave patterns. Um, so I, I just have not found anybody, look, you know, the Dork crew is about the only place in the world I can talk about these things. So if I was to sum that up, I would say you view these statements as condescending ways of ending an argument before getting into the meat of it. Well, at least sometimes, yeah. And and right. I use it's, like it's somebody use, making a statement that is is provocative but not arguable. I use I use the word absurd. You know, seemingly absurd. Okay, now I know in in building large-scale simulations not all systems behave in an intuitive manner. Not all systems do what you expect them to do, okay? And you'll have sometimes uh, managers of these systems saying, no, it's not going to do that. Well, you, you walk them through the model and you show what the model is showing. And the question is, is this actually creating a meaningful analog of reality? Right. Is it reflective of reality? Is, is it reflective of reality? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. I mean, I've made some boners. I've made some, some errors in, in modeling. Anybody who's done any big-time modeling has. But I, I don't have a problem with statements that's, that talk about things that are difficult to understand. I have a problem when these absurd statements are made, seemingly absurd statements are made, and there's not an equally or a, a, an extremely high level of support for that statement. Hmm. Well, it's kind of like look, I've, go ahead. Gosh. Uh, uh, it's kind of like I've heard uh, some people say, uh, "We're just all in the simulation. We're all in the matrix." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're. In, I don't think we're in a simulation. <laughs> and I, I, I don't care what Elon says. I don't think we're in a simulation. 
Well, I mean, of sorts, right? Like, just if you define like what reality really is, what is it? Oh, I like it. Keep going with that, Gus. Because <laughs> that's exactly the way I think. Yeah, you, yeah. You and you, you and Dave could just probably carry on the rest of the show. <laughs> like I had, I've had conversations with theists that where they're trying to tell me that God isn't an, isn't an alien, and by definition, God is an alien. God isn't from the world. Like if you read like what most religions teach. Um, so like think about like principles like that like what do these words that we're saying actually mean and like what's the what's the archetype behind the word like the word was invented for a reason right which word was that any word like so we're, we use these words to describe things right and we use calculations like we use our math to describe things that actually happen but really what are they it's our five senses trying to make sense of what we see and hear and taste and smell every day. But like, that's essentially like you're in a video game <laughs> and you can't possibly, you can't possibly know and see everything that exists in the universe at the same nope, time. You right? cannot. Nope. And, and so I guess like my thought is like, why bother? And why not just say you're in a simulation? <laughs> What's well, the point? Well, I mean, it's but Are a simulation. Than the simulation? A, a simulation implies a simulator. I mean, and, wouldn't wouldn't your mind be the simulator at that point? Like, well, I ask you this: if you have someone who creates a simulation, let's say a gaming world, they create the <laughs> characters, they create the rules on how things operate in that world, they create the environment, the artwork everything it's all you know rule-based chunks of code whatever how is that different than god creating the universe in my mind so, not i think from my okay. view we're god's simulation now that's not where elon's going right what no. elon's saying no. is, is we <laughs> have the at some point we'll have the capability of uh making massive simulations that everything down to the finest atomic level detail and if we can run those kind of simulations we will we'll run them for a bunch of different reasons and if we do the chances of us being the real one versus the simulated one is pretty small because there will be more simulations than there are real people that's the i think the general idea of where he comes from but that implies a simulator other than god it's a some person in the future or past who is using this technology, but it's no different than what I think God does. I mean, by definition, the simulation, right? Well, we're a creation. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, then and we live in a like universe people... that has rules. It has ways that things function and work. It has some sort of media that it is built out of. I don't know. It's an interesting thought. What if the rules are like given? Like, what? What if we give the rules permission? Like, by permission to by do what? Perceiving them by perceiving them. Like so the, the, the perception of the the perception right. of the rule brings about the reality of the rule. Right. Not sure and what if the rules can change based on based on the way you think. Well, that's a cool thought. I mean, on the quantum level, all the all the rules change, right? We talk about quantum computing. That's mind blowing, right? You're not gonna. 
you're not gonna be able to um, draw a picture of that right i can yeah hmm. and we've talked about that a little bit in the past the idea that at the quantum level it seems like we are able to influence very small things but that's a lot different than creating complex things, right? The idea, and this is, I think we were talking about it in relation to tulpas. Yeah, you said we'd have pink pink narwhals swimming down the street. Right, right. <laughs> you know, if that's what everybody's thinking about, then you would think that that's what would happen. So if the universe does have a creative mode in reality that allows us, to, it has to be in only very specific circumstances. You've got to have a very specific set of rules that you have to hit. In well, I mean, if you take like a biocentrist like point of view on it, like the whole thing is a simulation and everybody has a different experience, right? Like you could have 10 people in a room, something could happen and it could be described 10 different ways based on the emotions and based on like the viewpoint of the person that experienced it like that, that happens all the time well my greatest disappointment on trailer trash terrors has been that i got what i thought was an acceptance from frank tipler to be on the show which would have been a for me a real real win <laughs> you know <laughs> um apparently frank is getting kind of sick have you guys read any of the Frank Templer stuff? I guess I have. Okay, Frank Templer wrote the book called The Omega Point. And the, the premise of the book is that as time, as time progresses, computing capability will become so massive that it will be trivial for a computer to completely recreate all possible events in the past, including J.J., which is a relatively unlikely event if you just think about it. <laughs> That's not the crackpot professor from Louisiana. Yes, he is. I read that book when I was in college. I was so incensed, I threw it across the room. Oh, okay. Well, wait, wait, wait. This, this is all right. This is good. Okay. I mean, the, 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 the book, the book ideas. I threw across the room. All right. This is a good point. JJ threw the Omega point across the room. I threw the number of the beast across the room. Gus, you thrown any books across the room? Gus, aliens got Gus. Dave, you thrown any books? You thrown any books across the room? Oh, I'm trying to think. I, you know, there's been very few books that have made me so mad that I've. I, although, you know what? The book that I threw down, and didn't pick back up again the series was made by HBO <laughs> yeah. was, was the Game of Thrones. Was the Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones okay. Thrones, yeah. what, what made got, you so I got so mad when they killed Ned Stark. Oh, yeah. Because okay. I related to that character so much. Well, you realize you, you just sent spoilers out to the universe there. Yeah, if they haven't heard that Stark died in Game <laughs> of Thrones by now, they're never going to hear it. <laughs> I've, never seen, I've never seen a moment of Game of Thrones. Oh, I you read know, the books years before it was ever made and loved them until the last two that came out were split and like half, like the characters that I absolutely abhorred were all in one book. The ones that I liked were all in another book. And I'm like, no, this is, this is crap. I cannot do it. And I stopped from that point on. All right, Deacon Josh, what, have, is there something you've thrown across the room? No, I've never thrown any books across the room. Okay. I've thrown three. 
Oh, wow. JJ's on wow. the far end of the belt. He's a here. prolific book thrower. Apparently so, and I don't think okay, I'm so, full so of rage. First, the connoisseur the of first one was the Omega, the Omega Point. Okay, what was what were number two and three? The second one was the Demonologist. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh-huh. And the third was Evil Archaeology. Yeah, mm. you talked about you talked about two of those books on your podcast. Yes, I did. I did yeah. an entire episode on how horrible evil archaeology happened to be. So I'm quite proud of that episode. <laughs> I also remember the Discord messages. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I was I was in fine form during that. <laughs> all right, Gus. So all right, Gus, have you returned? I have returned. You have you have returned. You have unleft. Are we talking about throwing books? We're talking about are there books that you have found so angering that you've thrown them across the room? Probably, unfortunately, Book of the Hobie. I was I was expecting so much more, and it was so much less than I expected. All right, so so this was just a uh, a disappointment in what the book actually was, not anger at something the book was saying. It was, uh, I mean, a pretty anachronistic view of like the the Hopi people, and I, I was expecting more like substance as far as like the belief system, but it wasn't uh, that. So, <laughs> well, JJ, I, I really find the the whole Omega Point idea really fascinating. Uh, I use just I just use two reallys there, so really really fascinating and i've i also find tipler entertaining but i've I'm known you do. a fair number of people who really get angry with the whole tipler idea so what is it about tipler that that angers you so much it is so his conjecture was if you have a computer that can have the operational parameters of a human brain and he gave some pretty wild estimations in that book. Well, you're not kidding, and I'll agree with you on that. I mean, some of the, I, I remember looking at some of those calculations, thinking, "Where the hell is he coming up with this?" Yeah, then it should just spontaneously develop consciousness. And he tries to, he goes out of his way to attempt to prove this scientifically, which none of it makes sense absolutely none of it and i was just like no screw you i'm out and well, I, that's when i threw the book one of the things that people get mad about is they they think that everything he's talking about is an allegorical discussion of christ i did not come across that particular <laughs> that, was... <laughs> that didn't come in your mind no i was purely thinking about this from a from I, I took it at face value. Well, I mean, I, I mean, the one thing I will say about the Omega Point is there's a keeping it clean. A lot of yank it out of your Kazuni math. Oh my gosh! Yes. In in there, there's a lot of a lot of you. You know what I mean by that? Just whoop, yep. here it is. Here you go. So, yeah. Gus, are you a, are you a person who's spent much time reading um, Carlos Castaneda? No. No, I'm, a, I'm more of a Sir Timothy Dexter reader. <laughs> Never mind. I, 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 don't, I don't know who that. Uh, I, I don't know who that is. Who is Timothy Dexter? <laughs> if you're gonna tell a joke, oh you gotta at least explain it to the plebeians out here. Never mind. All right. Okay. Well, it's a guy that 
um, he was kind of a fraud. Um, he was kind of a philander. Um, he married this woman. He was not really a, um, he was not really um, a knight or a sir or anything. He basically gave himself the moniker and he ended up, he was just very lucky and he started writing books and none of them made sense. And the punctuation was wrong. The grammar was wrong. <laughs> the everything was wrong about it, but it got a, it got a review somehow. Um, and it made the New York times like bestseller list because of the bad reviews it got. And he got, he got panned for the way he wrote this book, which is it made absolutely no sense. And like the sentence structure, like it's just like just rambling thoughts. And, um, he came out with the, with the revision of the book after he got a lot of feedback on it, um, and ended up on the New York times bestseller list. And the, he added one page to the book, a bunch of punctuation, like all in a row. And he's like, and he left there you go. In the, all fixed. At, at the, yeah. Yeah. He was <laughs> like, here it is. Here's all the punctuation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But basically, yeah. and let me guess, they have college classes now breaking down the brilliance of his writings. <laughs> Timothy, no, De Timothy Dexter, the dumbest rags to riches story. He was extremely lucky though. Like, he he had he 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 married this woman that that was pretty well off. Oh, this is cool stuff. It, there's a whole like his life story is just phenomenal. It's a whole rabbit hole, but it was a um, it's not worth reading. <laughs> yeah, but the day. story of Timothy Dexter is worth reading. What he wrote is not worth reading. <laughs> I, I tried. <laughs> what have you ever tried to read Charles Fort? Oh no! Hard, hard to read Charles Fort, but well, look, I believe that it's time to call upon our resident Hebrew Bible scholar, which is JJ, and ask him to talk about Ezekiel's wheel. Unless anybody has an objection. Yeah. Can we frame this as an alien conversation? By the way, because. It is absolutely not going to be an alien conversation. We've got you covered. Whenever, whenever he stops talking, we'll, we'll throw an alien stuff. Okay. All right. <laughs> but beyond, before we get to that, though, I do have one thing to say about another one of the topics that came up, which was the nature of evil. That is, that's not a one minute topic, JJ. It's not, but I have. That's a two day one, topic. I've got one thing to say. Okay. And then you can hash it out or we can skip past it and put a book dog ear in it, whatever you want to do. I may be the only one, but a lot of people just take for granted this very common statement that without good there can be no evil or without evil there can be no good okay. and that i would call that an unsupported the, dichotomy oh it is it is a the most extreme dialectic that you could possibly get mm -hmm. i third I, with every fiber of my being i reject that hmm. can i tell you why not i figure right it now. probably has something to do with Wee herman or something like that but 
no, I don't. I, so I have been pondering this for decades at this point. I still can't give you definitive, this is my thought process around it yet. But in my heart of hearts, I, the very first time I ever heard this conversation, I was like, no. And in fact, when I watched that absolutely horrendous Jerry or uh, Gervais movie about, you know, everyone always tells the truth, but yet he was the only individual who suddenly gained the ability to lie. I stopped it 10 minutes in. I'm like, no, this is absolute dog rubbish. Wait, 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 wait. The whole world exists in such that they can't lie. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. And then somebody gains the ability to lie. Right. Okay. That's an interesting, and that's an interesting philosophical The question. premise was interesting the way that the movie was done and just him in general absolutely was not. Okay. But... Yeah, but it's kind of that same theory brought out to much more understandable concepts, I would say. Well, fictionally, I mean, I'm, I'm, my mind immediately goes to a, all right, let's posit a universe that is utter evil everywhere, all the time, under all circumstances. And what would that universe be like? Notice that I've asked a question that makes everybody silent. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't mean, have an I don't have an answer to that. You, and, and then the so question you, in my mind comes: if if every if the universe is utterly evil all the time, everywhere, under all circumstances, how do you know? How do, what do you compare it to? Yeah, that's I'm, the issue. I was just curious about the, the Ezekiel wheel, how that ties in. Like, I I, I didn't. Oh, kind of this, this, this is just paranormal rundown world. There's no, this there this is a pre-topic rabbit okay. hole. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. It's happened sometimes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so I think that's, I think that's part of the intent of the statement. Without evil, there can't be good. Without good, there can't be evil. Because if there's only one thing. Right. If it's all good or if it's all evil, there is no contrast to notice the difference. You can't really um, you can't really measure it. Who created good and evil? That's that's a that's a pretty big question. I mean, it's a thought like if you're if you're a theist, you have to if God created everything, then why would he create evil at the same time? If if it wasn't to serve a purpose or like part of nature or part of the the construct yeah, I think there's a question, right? It's does did God allow evil or did God create evil? Because those are two different ways of looking at it. But if you create free will to, to have evil in the first place, then essentially you're creating evil, right? By definition, create by allowing free will to, to allow choices to be made. That does not mean that uh, you intend evil to be made with those choices. Well, and it's, choice, it's allowing it. If you're God, it's I suppose you have happen. the understanding that evil is possible. Yes. Right. Right. But, I mean, but why allow it to exist at all if it wasn't part of some plan or some scheme? Well, I think it probably is part of the plan. I think it does serve a purpose. And you could say in the same way, 
Christian standpoint, you say the third of the angels fell. Why did God allow that to happen? Why didn't he just eliminate that third of the angels right then? Maybe they crash landed. Two thirds were good. <laughs> the rest were evil. All right. I get rid of the evil. Done. Well, now look, we I just mean, got all good. There's I something. Mean, that, is there a difference between evil and the, I guess what I would have to call the evil impulse? Okay. I'm thinking back to somebody's probably going to look, give me dirty looks in a minute, but the, the Star Trek episode where Captain Kirk gets split in the transporter. And mm-hmm. and you've got the Captain Kirk, who's the milk toast Captain Kirk, and, and he's fully good. There's nothing evil about him. He's he's just he's as good as he can possibly be. And then yep. you've got the fully evil Captain Kirk, and he's he's kind of hiding in the corner. He's got that great look on his face. Well, the evil Captain Kirk is actually more effective than the fully good Captain Kirk, and so I believe that it. It simply just might be that that evil impulse is necessary for conscious sapient beings to be effective in God's creation. Are are you guys familiar with the the like Alan Watts and his concept of like the God button? You mean the God spot in the brain? No, the God button. It's a it's a metaphor. All right. I don't know so, what the God button is. Tell, Gus is going to tell us about the God button. So if you if you want to know maybe some of the logic behind this, like I guess you have to kind of submit yourself to like a position where you think it out logically. Like why why would this happen? Right. So the idea here is pretend for a second that you're omnipotent. We'll, we'll not call ourselves God at this point. Like, we'll just say we are omnipotent beings in this imaginary world and we can do anything we want, anything I'm, we can think kind of like Q. Right. Okay. And so you, all you have to do is think of it and hit a button. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you hit the button and you start doing all kinds of cool stuff. You, you do everything you've ever imagined. You do the best things in the world. And you keep hitting the button, and what happens eventually? You get bored. What's, yep. You get bored. Um, and maybe if you're God and you're omnipotent and you are in this position of power where you generate and create everything in the universe, maybe there's no other gods. Maybe there's one, right? Maybe what you want is to create things that you can commune with, right? Correct. And maybe you want to create beings that maybe um, as as you create them, they're part of you, right? And and maybe it's an experience that you have through them in this universe that you create. Correct. You're, at the same time. You're, you're creating, well, minuscule elements of yourself that can experience things. Right. And then vicariously through all these things, you as God are also able to experience these things. Right. And I have, I I do know this concept. Yeah. Well, let's say, let's say you go through the, go through the mental exercise and you create this planet, you create all these people and you have all these shared experiences through different people's eyes. And one day 
you realize that as you're experiencing these lives, you realize that everything is orchestrated by you. You have, there's no chance involved, right? And there's no, there's no free will. There's no choice involved in the matter. Like these beings don't have a choice unless you give them a choice. Correct. Right. So you give them free will and you let them choose to, to do as they wish. Right. To do as they wish. And to experience Um, the consequences of doing as they wish. Right. So when you go through the the whole mental exercise, you're probably going to have instances of people that do terrible things, which, which might be evil, right? You might create angels that are evil as antagonists in the story. You might create, you might create all kinds of things that we haven't even, we can't even fathom, right? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure that there are evils beyond which humans can easily imagine. But even to the like the most um, even to the most like hardened criminal, like they know when they've done something wrong, right? And there's like this innate sense of um, well, for most people anyway. Um, not all of them <laughs> care, but yes, right. They, yeah. they do know that they've done something wrong, right? And I I don't know like what the definition of evil actually is, but and I think in my mind it's somebody that chooses to do selfish things probably and um, to care about yourself more than other people and maybe like the whole purpose here is to because the creator wanted to create living beings you know and we and we want we 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 experience good and we experience evil when we start to destroy ourselves right and that keeps us on the rails as 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 the human race advances as we experience evil it, it reminds us hey don't go too far in that direction or there's repercussions. Well, the you human the human race advances in terms of technology. The human race advances in terms maybe of philosophy. I'm not even sure about that. I mean, I see no evidence that a 21st century man is any more innately intelligent or wise than a third century man. Um, I mean, I, I think the collective experience is different, definitely. Um, but... Yeah, I think there's definitely a progression. I mean, if you if you look at just the ability to write things down and preserve them for the next generation, like mm-hmm. that in itself is is progression, right? Yes, that is. Well, when you talk about evil, the way you're describing it, Gus, you you sound like you're just describing behavior, good behavior, maybe intent. Bad behavior. I think I think more more intent. Okay. But intent and it's, like it's intent that's driving that behavior. Mm-hmm. I I can tell you from my experiences and run up against the demonic. There is something that feels evil. That is is much worse than any human acting poorly. Right? Do you know? But this is absolutely correct. But when you say the word feel, that that is you engaging in the thought, right? And I think us as humans, when we have those thoughts, we experience fear from that, right? Uh, this is Logically. experiencing a a being that was evil in my right. presence. And there was a feeling that came off of this being. It was not... I would not describe it as a, oh, I think that that's evil. It's a, you can 
feel hatred and darkness and what I would call evil, something that, you know, I would have to, my wife is a huge fan of true crime and serial killer, you know, documentaries and stuff like that. You, you really almost have to see the absolute worst unrepentant serial killers to even get close to feeling anything that's like this. But I, the only thing way I can describe it is as a feeling. It's what I felt at that moment. Not sitting here thinking back about it. I don't sit here and go, oh, that was evil. It's what I felt at the time that you made felt me that, like, feel it like you had evil. bad intentions, right? Like that's no, I felt it like no. there were waves of a force coming off of it as if I was just like you would if you were standing in front of a pot belly stove and feeling you that feel heat. the heat come off of the stove. I felt evil coming off of this being. This yeah. was not a thought exercise. Yeah, I would say that this is where there is a definite difference between mortal evil, which is usually rooted in selfishness, short-sightedness, something, etc., or preternatural evil, which is a willingness to destruction in full knowledge of what it's doing. And to do so on a universal scale. It is something that so far eclipses mortal evil that the two only share a name. Isn't that kind of like, I mean, humans are definitely capable of tremendous evil, in my opinion. Anyway. Um, oh, they are. Believe I, me. I think, I think it's, you know, experiences like this might serve a purpose. It might serve a purpose to to remind us that we shouldn't be. Oh, I think they do in the future. Yeah, we should. I think they do that. serve a purpose. That yeah. that uh, experience sent me down a path that brought me where I am right now, this second. I would not be here doing this if I had not had that experience. I would so not have the faith that I have now. So yeah, it served a purpose. But I'm saying that, and, and JJ split it up perfectly right there's there's human acts that can be evil and then there's preternatural evil that, that is, is something completely different and and the question is is which are we talking about right god allow people to do evil things that are human type evil yes i i mean i in my mind i don't segment like i don't i don't think i don't i like and maybe like maybe it's just because I haven't had the same experiences as you, but in my in my mind, like I think we are capable of tremendous good and evil, and we choose every day. And I think maybe if you're talking about like some kind of like being or demon or something like that, I mean, if you look at the biblical explanation of demons, they had free will at one point in time, right? And they they've probably gone through a similar. Um, evolution as, as humans have you know and yeah yeah well that's absolutely right they they do have free will. what if it's us in the future <laughs> <Think about that. laughs> 
<laughs> Boy, I certainly hope not. Well, I mean, it, it, that could be our future. Like if we, if we succumb to our selfishness and fear, you know. So, well, like, the, I, go ahead. Yeah, there was certainly nothing human about this thing. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, I mean, Vic, you've seen it. it I've ex I've experienced a few run these across things. The it's a <clears throat> I came up with the term <clears throat> insect nihility um meaning that using the term insect to mean that what I was dealing with wasn't human at all and the nihility part simply meaning devoid of anything human devoid of anything positive or good and I think it's a pretty decent term, actually. <clears throat> but, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've been kind of the same thing in the uh, y'all. Y'all know my my story, my personal story. Yes. The person that was the leader of that whole crew. Yeah. Same thing with him. It's a it's a it's a it's a very disorienting feeling. It's a very disorienting thing to be around. And Gus, I think you're right. I I think you. It, it's something that it's really hard to wrap your head around if you haven't experienced it sure that said i don't wish that experience on you <laughs> no well, i don't either I mean, to to be um i mean i've had weird experiences myself but i guess it, to put it into perspective here and like the way i think about it is the way that you the the power that things like that have are the are the amount of thought that you give to them you know and just generally speaking people like shouldn't think about that kind of stuff maybe maybe it's not for us yeah i I, I don't think that what what i ran into the things that josh has seen or vic uh, I, I i don't think we had any power over what these things are or are not I think well, God there, does, but but yeah, there's no. But, there might have been the ability to fervently pray and have some protection through that prayer. Yes. Maybe. <laughs> no, agree, agree. That's maybe, part of what maybe. maybe. Uh, I I can't even guarantee that. It's sort of well, like being in a cage with a lion, and thinking, okay. If I think that this lion is a cuddly little teddy bear, then it won't have claws and sharp teeth and eat me. And that's just not the way life works. You, you can't think differently about these things. When you run into something like this, it is what it is. And, you know, pray, you can call out, you can whatever but you're not going to change what it is you're not giving it power just by seeing it now you may be feeding it off of fear but you know that's not uh that's not making it what it is but if it's if it's so powerful and like you know you can't really do anything you're basically at its mercy then why care right and why be fearful of it um and at, at the same point in time, like, what can we control as humans? We can control what we do, right? To a and, certain degree, yes, we can. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I, I kind of feel like, okay, so if you want to, like, look at the 
the word karma, right? I mean, doing something with the intention of, of, um, or just out of fear or out of, out of hate or out of jealousy or something like that, you know, you're going to get what you put out. Um, if you do things out of love and out of a sense of like, you know, trying to contribute towards life and building life, that those are things that are like more powerful than things like that. And I mean, if you believe that there, there is a creator of the universe, like you have to believe that he's powerful or more powerful than his creation or what, you know, at, at some point, we have to take personal responsibility. Like the only thing we can control is what we do. We can't control what like some being or something that we can't even fathom what it is. You know, like we, I think like where, where we give power to things like that or when we react. One of the, I'm going to come up with one quick little concept here. I don't want it to go into a rabbit hole. The concept I always have trouble dealing with, with God is omniscience, not really omnipotence, but omniscience. And that is because as a human, I can't, I can't perceive what it's like to live in such a way that there can be no novelty, that there can be no surprises. Okay. If I'm omniscient, that means I not only know everything that's happening right now, I know everything that's ever has happened and I know everything that ever will happen. And that is a, I mean, to me, that's a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's it. That makes the assumption of time. Yeah. Like, yes, it, it, it does make the assumption of time, but I, that would but, make, that would make a creator like sub subject to time in that construct. Right. Well, not necessarily, not necessarily. I mean, you, you would assume as Tipper does that we were talking a creator that can exist in all times and in all spaces. So I've always that had this mean omniscience at the same time, right? Yes. But I've always had this, this question in my mind of could a creator God shield part of himself. I'm going to use himself just because it's convenient from that knowledge. And that's one that's possible, that? right? I would yeah, assume that's possible, right? I would assume that's possible. And that's, that's one of the reasons that I find myself. So for instance, why I've never found there to be any issue with the idea of evolution, because evolution is a system that will bring about novelty over time. And would an, omnis an omnipotent, omniscience God be able to say, I'm creating this zone of activity, this zone of possibility where I'm not exerting any control and I'm shielding myself from the knowledge of what might happen. And then you get a, you get a planet with a sort of you know, a variety of life as earth. So you're thinking like hiding the random number generator, hiding the random number generator, which is a, <laughs> as good a statement as any, but so Gus, you said you've had some experiences, but yep, that's what I want to know too. <laughs> In my youth, I've, um, you know, I was out there, uh, and uh, I've I've seen like um, some odd things, I guess you could say. Um, there's there's been experiences where I felt like I've been in contact with like uh, being like you're described, like you described, like 
and it was it was very frightening like and like i remember back on it and like i kind of can relate to the to the um the thoughts that you might have had at the same time but like um i also kind of felt like uh, at the same time there uh, there was like a benevolence involved in in like the scenario where like i wasn't afraid for my own personal safety like it was more or less like i'm experiencing this creature that is like you know more powerful than me and like there's nothing there's nothing i could do like if if this thing wanted to just destroy me you know what i mean and at the same time like i i didn't feel like it mattered i guess if you were destroyed I get well. I get. I, I on some level, um, it's just if you if you can't do anything, what does it matter anyway, right? <laughs> so, like, if you're if if you're falling and like you're about to hit like the ground, like what do you, like? Okay, change position if you want, but like you're still going to hit the ground, right? Yes. So it's sort of like it's sort of like why be afraid of it? Um, why not? Um, not try to well, understand it but you, try try to be um maybe yeah actually maybe try to understand it and try to maybe um figure out why this is happening right mm -hmm. and I think well what you're talking some, is a, to, a fatalistic position of there's nothing i can do to change this let me experience it the best i can and learn from it what i can and to some extent and in my scenario i i was probably in need of correcting my life at the time um and i think um maybe that experience helped me to do that and maybe that served a purpose for that but i think um it, it does change you when you see things like that and like i just i don't go around like fearful of those things like and maybe they maybe they exist maybe they don't maybe they're in our minds maybe it's something that is ingrained in us to experience like to to make sure that we live the right way and to make sure that we don't make the bad choices yeah and and for the record if you're falling the only thing you need to do is to forget to, to hit, hit the, the ground, ground. <laughs> right <laughs> that is how you learn right. to fly yes that's how you right. learn to fly <laughs> but but I, I i get what you're saying and, and i yeah. don't I, I don't want to uh come off as like oh i'm fearful of, of this thing and the experiences were scary in the moment right but but no it's not something that that i'm afraid of vigilant over but but no i don't walk around in fear because of it but when when i'm describing evil i'm just describing the way it felt at, at the time it was much more than just a bad acting human but, right. Yeah, I do think these experiences are allowed in our life as a way to teach us something. Yeah, I want to say to um, enact some change. And correct me if I'm uh, if I'm wrong for those that have read the book, but I want to say it was in Hostage to the Devil. I want to say Malachi Martin said, "You'll know true evil when you're in the room with it because you'll feel nothing but that pure hatred, that want for you to die." Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't care who you are. If you don't fear that, then something is horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do.
<laughs> JJ, can you give us a good starting point for Ezekiel's wheel that we, that we can do in less than half an hour? Not if we're going to contaminate the talk with, uh, with that of aliens. I have no interest. <laughs> I, I, I have no thoughts about aliens other than I was first introduced to that idea by my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Basham. And he just, he read the art, you know, he read Ezekiel and he said, that's a spaceship. That was, oh, dear Lord. But, <laughs> but okay. The rule is we are talking about Ezekiel from a biblical perspective, not including the idea of aliens. Correct. So in the Hebrew Bible, there are three classifications. Well, there are two classifications of angels. There are the cherubim, which make up the living throne, that at least within historical perspectives had four hooves, and a human-like face uh, that's directly inherited from Akkadian mythology. What, what do you mean by the term living throne? It is a throne made up of cherubim. Okay. They the throne of God? Form, yes, the throne of God. Okay. And in Ezekiel, that is... Is it like a literal chair? Is that... It, I, what is, like, when it's translated from the Hebrew, like, what, what's the original context of it is it's, it like a chair it's living throne and okay. if you look at ezekiel then it is defined by he redefines the cherubim as having four hands one central hoof four faces and if you line this up then they form a box with four of their hands intersecting and then the other four pointing outwards at each one of the directions and then the hoof the one central leg becomes a spoke so it essentially becomes a living chariot to ezekiel okay there are the seraphim which, at least according to Phoenician reliefs, are depicted as fire snakes. And that is borne out through the other uses of the word seraph in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. I actually did an entire episode on Southern Demonology about the concept of angels. There is a potential third category that some pseudepigraphal books go into details into and that would be the ophanim and those are the wheels and these are the living wheels that appear beneath the central foot of the cherubim okay. and as a result it does form a perfect chariot in which the Spirit of God then rides around in the midst of. I personally don't think that you can classify the Ophanim as a separate angelic category. 
but I am not going to make the argument here one for you know before or against. But I will say the other extra biblical resources have pointed out that whenever it went over the classifications of angels, then it included the Ophanim in that list of potential angels. Now, there are other types of angels that are listed in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you know, there's the, um, the, uh, the angel of God. There is the lying spirit of God. There's a few different types, but if you look at the general categories, those are the three that have been pointed out. JJ, can I interrupt us for a second to ask yeah, a question? Yeah, absolutely. The, the way you're describing these things, it's a very structural, mechanical kind of description. Oh, it is. And yeah. that was one of the revolutions that Ezekiel as a book brought to the Hebrew Bible and the prophets. What was the, What do you think the purpose of the story was? It is to shock into all, to try to jolt Israel out of its sinful behavior, to demonstrate the absolute majesty of God and how that should lend credence to Ezekiel's words. At rough, that's what I would say that, you know, all of that is about. Do you like, do you believe in like the literal sense of the story, or do you think it's like a metaphor for something? Or, I mean, it, it seems the with the the sort of structurality is that a word? The structural nature of everything you're talking about, uh, hard to make a metaphor there. I mean, that that I mean, it really sounds like the creation of a transportation system. Yeah, Ezekiel takes that to the next level, and honestly, if if there's one part of the holy writings that I could say is more likely to be an actual vision from God rather than just a metaphor or a or an allegory. This really does stand out in my brain as something that is a radical reinterpretation and leap forward in evolution of thought around the structure of heaven, the, the, the throne of God, and you really don't find its like until you come to Revelation where or as Father Birdsong would say, revelations, if I'm, <laughs> no, I'm joking, uh, in which the, uh, the throne, the seraphim, and the cherubim are actually all merged into one set of beings. And I will throw one last thing in there. This entire depiction of the quote-unquote realistic angels that you see spread all the way across social media, it's BS. There is no basis of reality for any of that crap. It has picked and chosen from so many different sources 
to try to come up with the most grotesque images that it's patently ridiculous. Are angels Are you talking about the, the images of the, of the wheel itself? Oh, no. Yeah, they confuse, they conflate everything together. Okay. So it's just, it's BS. It's total BS. And I call that out even in my own episode. But um, are angels awesome? Absolutely. Will they fear you, fill you with, uh, with dread? Yes. I said before that meeting God is going to lead to a very bad day. Very, very rough day. <laughs> I would say the same thing for meeting an angel. <laughs> Did you... What do you think of the book? Oh, go ahead. I'm you sorry. go ahead, Gus. What do you think of uh, the book of Enoch? I am a I am an expert on the book of Enoch. I have done a lot of translation, of study. I've done quite a few different episodes on it. It is an extra canonical book for a very, very, very good reason. What What was the reason? Yeah. Well, to me, it is the the central problem is the Nephilim. You so the one of so Enoch's divided into four different sections, and the most interesting section by and far is the first, where it is attempting to provide an explanation for Genesis six, because that is the most troubling theologically in a lot of different respects. And it is not the only extra canonical book that attempts to explain Genesis 6. Jubilees falls into the exact same category. And ironically enough, both of those books were considered canonical in Second Temple Judaism. But the main issue with Enoch in particular is the fact that after the Watchers bound themselves in a curse to sleep with the daughters of man after seeing that they were comely, that union produced a race of bloodthirsty giants that then sinned by devouring and screwing Anything and sometimes at the exact same time, Every, everything that they, get their, they can get their hands on, their hands on anything, fish, it, until you know the earth gave great cry unto the heavens, and then God sent four of His archangels to then deal with the problem, and then Gabriel sent the Nephilim against one against each other in battle until they were slain. The problem is that even after they were slain, they were never dispatched because they were an unholy union between mortal or flesh and spirit, as it says. And so, therefore, their, their remaining spirit was unleashed into the atmosphere. And that's where they stay, theoretically. And they have nothing but hatred in their, in their being. And so even God, who sent forth the deluge to wipe away 
all of the horribleness that happened because of the watchers, it did nothing because the Nephilim are still in existence. So the with the Book of Enoch, there's a whole narrative where Enoch describes um, basically going to heaven, right? There, and he's describing um, a journey where he goes and, and actually goes to the throne of God, right? Yes, that's still okay. in the first section. Are there like parallels between the Ezekiel version and the the Book of Enoch? No, I was wondering not. So the descriptions are completely different. Absolutely different. Because Enoch doesn't describe heaven. He describes the living throne of God. And that's about as far as he goes. Whereas Enoch actually depicts an entire vision of heaven and then the area in which the watchers were to be chained for seven times seven generations and all the rest of it so i mean and the other thing too is they have to remember that the pseudepigrapha which is the collection of works that existed between the hebrew bible and the christian new testament is it literally when translated from latin means false epitaph the writer claimed to be Enoch in order to lend greater weight to the words as they were written. And it is not uncommon to have that. There's an entire classification of books that fall into that same exact category. And in fact, exactly. And in fact, the only um, Christian, Christian religion that still believes those to be holy is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, who, without them, we would not have preserved the vast majority of those in gas. And it wasn't until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls that we actually find Hebrew copies of First Enoch and Jubilees. Hmm. So what do you think the difference between the living throne of God is and the description that Ezekiel gave? Because before Ezekiel, there really was no idea that the throne of God was a chariot. He completely reimagined what the cherubim looked like. He took their ancient origins and radically transformed them, which is, as I was saying before, uh, almost a complete evolution of thought on the matter. It's interesting. <laughs> I might be. <laughs> how, 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 can, I, can I ask some silly questions? I mean, some six-year-old questions? You can ask whatever you want, my friend. All right, so we're talking about seraphim forming the living throne of God. Not cherubim. What's that now? Cherubim formed the living throne of God. Okay, cherubim, excuse me. It doesn't really matter which, but do we ever get any kind of understanding as to the population of the seraphim and the cherubim? How Not many in the of these, Bible. How many of these critters are there? No, there is... There's no definitive answers to any of this. In fact, the angelology that you find contained in the Hebrew Bible 
is woefully inadequate to answer such questions. Now, when you turn to other sources of Jewish thought, whether that be the Midrash or the Talmud or even much later Kabbalah, then you can find some of like more theoretical or theophosphatic, uh, whatever that word is, uh, <laughs> musings around that particular topic. Theos- Theosophical? Yes, thank you. Uh-huh. I am tongue-tied tonight. Uh, or <laughs> I mean, you can find also the you know the same kind of questions being posed in the early Christian church of you know how many angels can dance on the head of a sure person. sure and and these these are I, I assume utterly meaningless questions. It's just when something starts describing an unseen reality as a very much like you would describe the assembly of an engine the numbers start popping in my mind. You know, yeah, as, and I can see that. Mm-hmm. But the number, like, for example, um, it always talks about four cherubim, typically, mm-hmm. at least within Ezekiel. Um, there's an unspecified number when it comes to, um, you know, other depictions of them. The the ark has two cherubim that's supposed to decorate mm-hmm. its um uh, the not the re- the cover of it, um, etc. So, but well, yeah, there's no answers. It, it, to it that. does it does seem that there is at least a a finite and relatively small number of archangels. Four or seven. Yeah, four or seven. Yeah, I mean, we're not talking thousands. We're talking, let's just say seven. <laughs> and, <laughs> of which the other three are in high fluctuation. Meaning? You have Michael, Mikael, who is like God. Who is like God. Gabriel, Gabriel, mighty warrior of God. Raphael, the healing power of God. And Uriel, the light of God. And the other three are... They are given different names and different works. Different works, right. Yeah, but the Hebrew Bible does not attempt... Like, for example, uh, there were, you know, at least according to Second Temple Judaism, there was an angel that led each one of the 70 nations. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, supposedly before people began drawing the connections between Zoroastrian being the potential source for the dualism that erupted within Second Temple Judaism, that that could have been a reason. While all of these other nations are trying to kick Israel's butt, if they're led by an angel then why are all of these other nations coming after one of the lead angels, which is over the nation of Israel, which is Israel? So if there's seven potential archangels mentioned, is there something that limits it to seven? Nothing nothing to my knowledge that has been categorically written now, when you come to the Christian New Testament, then you actually get, you know, different orders of angels, and it goes into a little bit more detail. And then there were extra 
canonical books to that, such as like the Pseudo Dionysius, which tries to go into much more detail, but it's also a heretical book. And uh, you can also look into the other angels in the uh, Summa Theologica from uh, Thomas Aquinas. Talks about the nine choirs. Where, where do you believe Thomas Aquinas gained that knowledge? Divine revelation. Divine revelation. <laughs> I guess about as much as about the best I can do. So, well, gentlemen, I'm becoming a bit fatigued. I'm yeah, glad, I am too. I'm glad I can almost talk like myself again. Public. I'm service. glad you're not throwing up. Public service announcement, avoid COVID if you can. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm really sorry that Father Birdsong could not be here tonight. Josh, you've done a great job covering for your dad. Absolutely. Give him Uh, our best. Gus, you have been just an absolute natural at the Paranormal Rundown. It's just like you went to Paranormal Rundown school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, and, And got outstanding marks. Who else has anything to say prior to us um, ending this? Nothing for me, other than it was great having you here, Gus. Yeah. Yeah, good meeting you guys. Interesting talk and appreciate the the other uh, perspectives on things. So. Just you, 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 you know, moved right into paranormal dork talk. So, all right, well, I'm going to end this, and um, it'll be several weeks before this comes out, uh, Gus. But I'll let you know when it does. And of course, you're welcome to contact us anytime. All right. All right. Talk to you guys later. All right. Bye. 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 Hello, one and all. This is Cedric. Jankworth Smythe. I received a letter the other day saying that I sounded somewhat arrogant when I stated my name. Well, I don't really know how else to do so. I guess I could say, Howdy, everybody, this here's Cedric. Well, that's not really my character. Well, we haven't had a good round of dungeon talk in a while, so here we go. Let's have some dungeon talk talking about dungeons and dragons. You know, one thing we've never talked about is that incredible depth of thought that went into bringing about all these Dungeons and Dragons monsters. Oh, I'm telling you, Gary Gygax was amazing. He, he, he's, I mean, there's, but there are, aren't there hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these, of these monsters? And I suppose they exist in some kind of relationship to each other and. Oh, they do. They're defined by the by the worlds in which they belong to. There are very distinct settings. Uh, you have Ravenloft, which is my favorite. That is a dimension of dread. You have the basic. Uh, I understand that. For uh, the basic setting, which is Forgotten Realms. You have Greyhawk, which was what. A, what D&D was originally set in that was a pure creation of Gygax, which then was unfavored in going forward because then they would owe him royalties. Um, that's why Faerun was created. Dark Sun, Spelljammer, the list keeps going on. And over the various different iterations of D&D, then you've had new and approved monster manuals created. Yeah, it, it's amazing. In fact, there's a YouTube channel called Dungeon Dad who will pick a random um, 
creature of the week and kind of highlight it. And there, but there's a ton of D and D podcasters out there that will go through and they're either the lore dumps of a race or a subset of creatures, or make up brand new ones for character for people to uh, to take advantage of. What were the, the little uh, figurines made of? Were they made of lead, or were they made of like something else? Uh, they can be Not made of a variety of pewter. Uh, some the older ones were made of lead, I believe. Uh, plastic. There's a lot of 3D printing going on now. Yeah, I can imagine. It's probably a easy way to make your character. But um, I I just remember seeing like I, I, there was a Dungeons and Dragons store near my house a long time ago. And I used to see all the, the figurines in the window and be like, are they all lead? <laughs> <laughs> not anymore, they're not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now you can go on, uh, I think it's Hero Forge, and make your character, then 3D print it from there. Oh, yeah. I mean, my gosh, they're huge in that space. You can fully customize characters and get them shipped straight to you. It's a nice service from what I've heard. It amazes me the interest in D&D to this day from podcasts and YouTube channels that uh, that are gameplay to online. What is it? Uh, Roll Roll 20? What is it, JJ, yep. that... Oh, you can play virtual on? tabletop systems. Yeah. yeah, Roll20 is kind of the biggest one, but there's uh, quite a few others that are in the in competition. Wizards is currently making their own right now, and it's been in development for a while. But can we take a, just a quick detour to say how, how many missteps can Hasbro, who owns Wizards of the Coast, who bought the original TSR has made in the last year. Oh, it's an insane amount. Oh my gosh. It started off with them trying to revoke the open open gaming license from mm-hmm. creators. And this is essentially what allows the base concepts of D&D to be used by independents and third-party companies. It's a huge deal. In fact, uh, this prompted, I think, the biggest rival uh, which uh, uses the, these a lot of these fundamental concepts to then the Cobalt Press to then turn around and say, "All right, fine, we're going to make our own called you know codename Black Flag, and we're just going to go from there because they're the ones who make Pathfinder, who is the biggest alternative to what you know traditional modern D D happens to be but then so they wizards finally kind of calmed the waters after a lot of missteps and said fine we won't do that we apologize it was a bad move which everyone agreed that yes it was but then right before the holidays wizard decided to go ahead and lay off 1100 people for in order to uh, and then the uh, the C-suite gave themselves a multi-million dollar bonus. We're like, wow! And like, and this is a big deal because uh, Wizards has been working with Larian Studios 
for years to create Baldur's Gate 3, which is the biggest thing that has promoted D&D in years. The game is phenomenal. It won Game of the Year. And all of the people at Wizard that interfaced with Larian Studios is gone. The company has no more contacts with that internal contacts with Wizards of the Coast. It is the most backwards thing, I a short-sighted move I have seen in a long time. So, yeah, even though there's a rabid fan base out there for D&D, especially given the release of the movie last year, Honor Amongst Thieves, they have made misstep after misstep to actively discourage the community. And there is a gigantic wave of backlash against them now. And it's yeah. well deserved. And there was another thing, too. It was affecting all the uh, content creators. They were trying to change the licensing where um, you couldn't stream it or even podcast it. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, one of the people that I used to listen to, um, AJ Pickett, uh, who may, who's been making lore dump videos for years, um, he like switched away and, st and started thinking about making his own open gaming license. A lot of people are doing this. But if they took away the open gaming license, then it, it, they could monetize anything that came out of it. And there's a huge independent press uh, around D&D modules and concepts. And that would have put the kibosh on that. I wonder anyway, if I they're expecting. Around, but. Well, I just wonder if they're expecting a a significant shrink in in gaming revenue for the year because Microsoft just laid off 1,900 Activision, Blizzard, and and Xbox employees. Oh, I know, and the the fact that that merger even went through was the biggest bloody mistake that could have been made in the gaming world but yeah i mean tech just in general is having a huge another horrible year another of year. layoffs uh, but AI the reason, it's not going to make it any easier <laughs> but the reason why that Wizards, well, hasbro did this move is because even though they were profitable extremely profitable their profits did not compete with Mattel's. That was the driving reason. And of course, Mattel had a banner year because of the Barbie movie. So, yeah. It, these companies are run by analysts, though. Like, they're, you know, they're people that they, they think Coke and Pepsi, and that's it. Yeah. It's another horrible example. Of the famous McGillivigger and Slobmeyer consulting firm, known internationally for making horrible business decisions. You see, JJ started to name some large consulting firm that has more lawyers than we have chocolate chip cookies. We don't want to anger them. But I think you could use your imagination. There are, of course, hundreds of McGillivigger and Slobmeyer type corporations across the world. And boy, did they ever make all of our lives so much better.
Well, hello everybody out there. This is Alternate Universe, Joe Cool with Vicar Manson. I'm the coolest, most laid-back guy in this universe, or any other universe for that matter. Well, that's episode 15. Count them, 15 of the Paranormal Rundown, in the bag, as they say. Well, this was an excellent rundown. That Gus, man, he knows his stuff. You know, we got a new employee here at the rundown. That's Spanky the Demon. He's been trying real hard to get a job for a long time. We finally decided he, he deserved a job. So next week, or next rundown, sorry I was speeding things along there, you'll get to hear Spanky the Demon. The Paranormal Rundown is a joint production of Dick Hermanson, J.J. Johnson, Dave Griffith, and Father Michael Birdsong. Our guests are an integral part of the show, and if you'd like to be a guest on the Paranormal Rundown, just contact us at feedback at paranormalrundown.com. That groovy music you heard was from Lobo Loco and Smart Sound. Any media clips we decided to use, they're under the protection of the fair use doctrine. Please, if you get a chance, be extra special kind. I mean, just truly excellent. And give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until episode 16, this is Joe Cool Vicar Manson. Signing off for the Paranormal Rundown.